This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And today's episode is brought to you by the carbonated water and several chocolate truffles I ate right before we started recording. And Eric's harsh judgments over same, I should say. It's going to be dicey up in here. We'll see. I have very good diction. It doesn't matter if it's had a little chocolate. He's got a mouthful of phlegm, and he belches like Barney on The Simpsons, so anything could happen. It's going to be wild and crazy tonight. I belch like Barney in private or just with you because you have the fortitude and the strength to put up with it. I would never subject our beloved party people to my my unadorned, uncensored belching, uh, which means we have Brandon edited out when it does happen. I was going to say... If you can repress it, and you haven't been, I'm driving over to your house, violating uh, curfew and bopping you in the head. We're not under curfew anymore. There's no curfew, thank God. Curfew curfew was a protest-related thing here in Los Angeles. We're just under a sheltering at home and a mask order. But it, once again, we want to add in that we're trying not to talk about the pandemic because we want these episodes to live forever. But if these episodes do sound somewhat different than our first, at this point, we're so far past the number of non-pandemic episodes that we've produced that I've almost stopped putting the disclaimer down at the bottom of our episode summary saying, I, we're recording these remotely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Have we recorded pandemic. more remotely than we recorded regularly now? I don't know. That's a really good question, but it involves numbers. No, Brandon, Brandon our says sound designer, no. is shaking Brandon his head. Says no. No. Brandon says so it no. It must Brandon's, be true. Brandon, our resident heterosexual, says no, and so he must be right about everything. <laughs> so we welcome you back to another installment of Christopher and Eric's. This is a provisional welcome, given what lies ahead for us today. Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club returns this week. Uh, If you would like to watch the episode we're about to discuss, and I have to tell you, we don't recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) Or we do, depending on, you know, the reason that you enjoy watching these shows. This is going to be our first address, if you will, of an episode from a series called Young, Hot, and Crooked. The episode title is Killer Looks. It's season one, episode nine, streamable on various platforms. And oh my God, I feel like we maybe should have bantered longer (laughs) before we arrived at this. I I probably introduced this too early. But this is, I'm going to say, spoiler alert, I think this is the worst episode we've ever covered. I I I think it's probably the worst. It is really, it is really, it is... If it's not the worst, it's right up there. Like uh, Red yeah. Rum was pretty, 
that was pretty lousy. Um, this one was like the thing that this one had going for it was I think the main reason for doing it on the part of the producers was so they could hire some hot guy mm -hmm. to like dance around with his shirt off for most of the episode. Like that was pretty much it. It was him in a towel, him in a G string, him in his short, you know, it was him. Mm -hmm. It was that hot guy they hired dancing around. So there's that, right? <laughs> as opposed to <laughs> as opposed to a series of um, reenact reencraptors um, doing terrible performances of an, an insufferable Texas family. You know what I mean? So like, <laughs> insufferable Texas families is actually a series on Discovery ID. No, it's not. It's probably called I think it's called Southern Fried Homicide or something like that. That was uh, yeah, so. Uh, Red Rum. Oh, oh, right. Red Rum. You were actually being, it was a specific reference. Another 20-minute yeah. show. So I think maybe that's a that's a red flag here. This the was the second time the we plus, did an episode yeah. that was only 20 minutes. Typically, we do 20-minute uh, episodes for a segment we do called What Science? And that's when we know we're getting into kind of the shit with people. But we were expect. I was expecting more out of this. Uh, the reenactment that you're referring to is, I think, one reenactment that they filmed with three different camera angles, which they just spliced up to make it look like it was different strip clubs and different parties. I think you should tell them. Do you do you have access to the uh, the description of the episode? Uh, okay. Yes, I, I I can get access I believe, to it because don't that's see. really one of the primary things that we look at here at. Uh, Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club is the description of the episode. So sometimes I think the temptation is about that what that uh, description implies or suggests about the episode, and it sometimes leads us down a, a dangerous path, which I, I think is what happened here. Have you found the description? I have found the description. Oh, wait, I hit the wrong button. The internet is just a series of it. Here it is. Okay. This is, the, this is the description. No, for starters, the show is called Young, Hot, and Crooked, which Already basically says this is going to be, rather than one of those emotional true crime shows that brings out your empathy, this is going to be about people that you don't like doing horrible things and being punished for it. That is kind of a subgenre of true crime. Okay, right. here is the episode synopsis for Killer Looks, episode nine. A Miami superstar in the adult entertainment industry, John Snavely has everything. And salt. Good looks, lots of money, and a VIP social life. The producers have a different definition of VIP than we do. But when the body of a rich entrepreneur is found murdered and he's connected, a lot of questions start popping up. Okay, so that's... that's Adult superstar, you're saying, is what sold I was us. Saying, I think that's accusation? kind of where. I think that's kind of where. Well, I'm not going to go with sold us because actually, <laughs> this is Christopher's pick. Um, you were betraying the covenant I, of true crime. I, I agreed. Club. I agreed, <laughs> but um, you know, I you didn't have to sell me particularly hard on it. But I think that was ultimately the temptation factor that that dragged us in. A, it's called. Uh, people with entitlement issues being punished. Um, right. And B, uh, Young, Hot, and Crooked, isn't that it? And young, then B, Hot, and Crooked, yeah. yeah. The, the, this is going to be, um, you know, porn star related. So, like, how could that not be fun? And now we'll explain 
how it could not okay be fun. We, we will explain how it's really not fun <laughs> it's it's not fun for various reasons um i'm gonna say right off the bat it had the same problem that the other 22 minute true crime episode we did which is red rum a christmas murder what was the subheading on that it's like episode seven or eight of our show um two people are interviewed like two or three people, I think, are interviewed, which tells you not a real, not a lot of depth of investigation here. The murder victim is never named. I have never seen that before on a true crime television show. For one, there's the sort of, there's the politically correct thing to do, which is give a voice to the victim. But in this case, they didn't even mention his fucking name. It's like, because, yeah, we didn't have time for the murder victim. We had to do this strip club reenactment over and over and over and over again. Anyway, they I'm almost didn't have time for the crime. Like, <laughs> it was it was most of the way through the show before they even got to it. They they'd spent a lot of time talking about him working at a barbecue place and being a kid in San Antonio and finding out that his real assets and implying as many ways as they could think of that he had really a big Johnson and that that was his moneymaker and he could shake it and he was a strip club when he got discovered by an agent for adult entertainment. I will say, I thought it was a really interesting choice that they totally straight-washed the show. This guy yes. got to start in gay porn and yes. went on, I guess, to have a career in not gay porn. You know, like, no judgments about that. But, like, they literally did not mention it. As much as they admitted was that it was um, that he danced at male strip clubs as well and that the guy, he went home with a guy. Um, yeah, you went home who, who they the murder, would not name. Which I thought was, so there was an man. undercurrent of head washing running through this crime. The reason that yeah. I, I, I actually, the name John Snavely didn't mean anything to me when I saw it in the synopsis. And then I Googled him. I saw the, the mug shots and I was like, oh, I remember him from Pizza Boy Gangbang. So I yes, was like, he's oh. Joshua Logan. Josh Logan was his gay porn name. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And I think when we get to the end, if we ever do, it's going to feel like forever with this one to get to the end. But um, there's there's a larger symptom of why this was not good that I will. I broke a cardinal true crime TV club rule, which is I went and researched the case after watching the show before you and I talked, which I never do because I want our conversations to be in the moment. And I sent you an update because anyway. We'll get there when we get there, but but I just I just want to prepare you. We're breaking a lot of rules because this was a really bad show, and it, it was a stress test for us here at True Crime TV right. Club. Right, and it's just, we will it, get through. We're doing everything we can on your behalf. Absolutely, we want you to have a positive True Crime TV Club viewing experience, despite the fact that we picked this turkey. Despite the fact you this horrible show. Okay, so first off. For being one of the shortest and worst shows we've ever talked about, it has the longest title sequence of any of them, and it has a theme song. Which yeah, is it's like, like an anime cartoon. It just is like, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I'm young, I'm hot, I'm crooked, and a woman like points a gun at the screen because she's young, hot, and crooked. So that was, a, that was really a bad start. So it's Miami 2010. Uh, we have a narrator telling us that John Snavely had a rough and tumble youth in San Antonio, Texas, where he was raised by a single mother. His dad was never around. 
He's making money at working at a barbecue shop. I'm sorry, he's making no money working at a barbecue shop. And eventually, he realizes the effect he has on women and decides to cash in. Now, this is how they um, portray the fact that uh, while working at a local San Antonio strip club, he drew the attention of a mysterious stranger named Justin Caro. Now, he's not that fucking mysterious because he's an interview subject for the show. So we then immediately go to a studio where mysterious Justin Caro, identified by his full name, is being interviewed in front of a backdrop that looks not unlike what you may have seen on the Ann Cobb show, as referenced yes, on the last episode. Yes, I, there, it was shot live at an Olin Mills studio in uh, the greater San Antonio area. And so he is a manager of adult film performers. Now, what you point out, I've already pointed out, they omit the fact that they are, he manages gay adult film performers, not straight. Yes. No. Yeah. Um, so he suggests, why not get out of stripping and into porn, he says to John Snavely. Because that's he, where the real money is. The real, and everybody who knows anything about porn knows that the real money in porn is never in front of the camera. It's behind the camera. This has been your moment of porn with Christopher Rice. Uh, he tells him, if you want a shot at the big time, you need to swim with the sharks in Miami Beach. And that's going to be the first of many sort of beach and ocean and shark references that uh, are oh, sprinkled through the Oh, just an absolute tidal wave of beach and ocean and shark references. <laughs> so in 2008, John moves to Miami. We then skip over his entire porn career, which uh, his gay porn career, which I think included like six different gay porn movies, which oh, they don't mention. It was, he was, yeah, he was absolutely, yeah. He had an exclusive contract with some gay porn company and was whatever. And, but we're just not going to mention that. And then suddenly... He lands a porn contract with a major straight porn company with a salary of $90,000 a year, which I believe about as much as I believe the Loch Ness Monster is in Donald Trump's It could cabinet. have happened, but... I but 90000 a year for a porn star? You think I, that's true? You know, I think that's really unlikely, but, you know, who knows what the deal is and who knows whatever. I, I think that's the least of my um, uh, lack of... <laughs> By incredulity, uh, where this particular episode, I figure that it, he probably went to work for the straight division of the same company that owned the other, because they're usually all one and the same, uh, that owned uh, yeah. the... That the, may be the, company the gay he company worked he worked for. for was called Jet Set, and I don't even I don't think they're around anymore. And the straight company he worked for was called Bang Brothers. None of this is included in the special. This was my supplemental research. Who knows? And they're um, all probably owned by Pornhub. Um, right. Or some Eastern European porn purveyor. All right. And at this point, the narration tells us he has trouble finding love. And to prove this, they immediately introduce us to his girlfriend, <laughs> who apparently he had trouble finding, but he had a girlfriend. And she says that he was a generous guy and that he treated her pretty well. And he used to send money back home to his mother. And he was also right. supporting his elderly grandmother. And it's at this point that he gets involved in the wild club life, uh, which gives rise to endless, endless, endless reenactments of the very oh attractive if reenactor. He takes, if he drinks that from that champagne bottle one more time... Right. <laughs> 
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Uh, we, I'm sorry, we have a breaking news report this here at CDPS. Then. We just, we, over the course of We are actually, we said earlier, or Brandon, our resident heterosexual, said incorrectly that we had done more episodes in our regular studio before the pandemic than we had recorded remotely. We have actually done two more remotely than we did in studio before the pandemic started. We are so sorry to have misled you. We now return to our scintillating and probing discussion of this awful half hour of true crime Really dreadful, young, hot, and crooked. Young, hot, and crooked, episode nine, Killer Looks. True Crime TV Club. 2010... Our subject, John Snavely, is doing drugs because that is what young people in Miami do. He loves being the center of the party. He's rarely home three days in a row. He's spending thousands of dollars a night. I don't believe that. And I would like to point out that the person who says he's rarely home three nights in a row is the gay agent. Ah. I just was like, hmm, really? And how would you, whose home would he not be home to? And Mm. how would you happen to be aware of that particular fact? It's not the girlfriend, it's the gay agent. Mm -hmm. Just a thought. He starts to moonlight as a stripper, as opposed to all those daytime strippers. His ego starts to build on set and he gets a reputation for being a pain in the ass. He starts to and not in a good from, way. And not in a positive and welcome way. Not in an invited... He wasn't an invited pain in the ass. He was an unprovoked pain in the ass. He, he starts to dance for female and male clients, I believe this, about as much as I believe... Right, uh, they act like this is the first time he's ever considered that. Even though he's had this major gay porn career, he starts to even perform for uh, at male strip clubs. I was like, what is up with this? Uh, clients start offering him money for private dances back at their apartments. I'm sure he made no <laughs> effort to do this. It was just sort of dropped in his lap, and I was like, and it was just dancing. Yes, because that's not where the money. The money is in the dancing. That's where you make your big anyway. So the narrator tells us at this point, and I'm quoting: "There's no quicker money in the adult entertainment world than gay for pay," which. John knew years before this moment because it was how he actually got his start in in the adult entertainment industry to begin with. So September 2010, while working at a strip club, John allegedly spends most of his time flirting with customers. And then a particular client catches his eye. And some sources say that they left the club together. Which they did. Now we jump ahead. Summer 2013. We're almost at the end of the show now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, He has a run-in with the police. He gets caught with drugs. As standard procedure, they take a DNA sample. The lab results set off alarms. And it looks like it's a possible hit for evidence collected from a cold case murder from three years earlier. And this is the first time we are hearing about a crime. And I'm going to say we're 
three to four minutes from the end of the show. Yeah, it was, I couldn't believe it. I kept pausing it to be like, oh, we're not this close to the... I mean, nobody's been murdered yet. I mean, it's not like I want people to be murdered, but Unless this we're is a counting prostitution, show. which they didn't really mention, but was obviously on the table, there is no crime has been discussed in the whole course of the show. Right. So we get the police. It's 2013. It's three years after the night that John Snavely left that club with that unidentified gentleman. Uh, turns out he was the victim of a murder and that he was a, quote, The unidentified gentleman. The unidentified gentleman was a victim of the murder. He was, quote, a well-known Washington, D.C. entrepreneur who often visited Florida. That's all code for gay. Uh, he'd been stabbed. The detectives had been focusing on the dead man's inner circle. They say nothing turns up. So they took a look at his secret life. Now, when they said nothing turned up, they later mentioned that he was breaking up with someone who stood to inherit, I think, a boyfriend who they also don't necessarily identify as gay, who stood Ever to inherit identified. like all of his money. So I'm sorry. What was that about his inner circle not turning anything up? Um, yeah, it was uh, it was an unusual like. But we don't really focus on the investigation at all because the show's really actually over. <laughs> it is. It's like I'm almost at the end of the show notes. So August 8th, 2013, John Snavely is arrested for murder. And this is the point. Okay, I, I'm getting ahead because of Because they found his DNA that matched from the, the crime scene. They busted him. They took his DNA from the bust, and it matched DNA on a Coke can and a joint. A, a joint and the shoe prints were kind of like his. There were shoe prints in the blood that kind of reminded them of his. So they arrest him or and charge him his, or his fingerprints are on the client's car, which becomes important, which will become important in the actual update that I'm going to give us once we get through this terrible show's coverage of this crime. John claims he's innocent. And that's the end of the and show. And that's the end of the show. <laughs> it's like, I couldn't believe it. This is not the end of the show. Um, Dakota at the end of the show says he denies all charges and is currently awaiting trial. So that is when... I had to break our true crime TV club rule. And I said, there is more here that, that uh, has to be at, le at the very well, it was least 2014. And we hadn't seen this guy get convicted. So clearly there's some, so, there's more to this story. Exactly. So the case was completely thrown out. Uh, none of the evidence was actually what the show said it was, which means it wasn't what the police said it was initially. There was DNA found on the murder weapon. It did not match John's. The bloody footprints, which they said were his, also did not match his shoes or his shoe size. Right. They discovered fingerprints on the inside of the victim's car and on the outside of the victim's car. John's fingerprints were on the outside. They were not on the inside. Cell phone evidence from the victim's phone indicated he had made a second trip into Fort Lauderdale the night he met John, where he might have picked up the actual killer and also might have dropped John off. The, and the man whose DNA might actually match the sample, I, I actually, I fucked up that note. I, I'm sorry, my brain was so corrupted by the bad show I just watched. I don't know what that sentence means. Um, the victim was also, as I said earlier, he was ending a relationship with a man in Virginia who stood to inherit half of his estate. And that this was also when I discovered that the first porn movies John Snavely had done were all gay. It was like six or seven of them. And the recruiter who got him to go from San Antonio to Miami was also gay. And that was his entree, entree into the adult industry before he connected with the studio Bang Brothers and did um, whatever. I, this was the worst show we've ever covered. Uh, I, one of the details that we did not mention from the show and 
it's not like there were a lot of them, but this, he did say at the time of the arrest that he was really fucked up and didn't have a complete memory of the evening, but he was felt like he hadn't done it. He, f- he felt like he hadn't done it. And I guess that's just not something you want to say to the police when they're interviewing you about a homicide. Well, I like, don't know that he said that I to mean, the police, but that was sort of his take on the crime. I wouldn't put it past myself, but I don't really well, think I did kill him. He couldn't remember going to the guy's house was what was the was the way that it was presented, that he was so fucked up that night that he didn't necessarily remember going to the guy's house in the first place. The nameless murder victim. Right. Who... You did get his name when you did the research, didn't you? I did, but I didn't write it, <laughs> I didn't write it down because it wasn't my so job. Even we you, were supposed to have a better show. You. We were supposed to have a better show. Okay, let me see. I'm going to look up his name right now. So, the, but, the, but the upshot is all the charges have been thrown out and that's not what happened and it was isn't him and he's completely moved on. And as I don't recent, know what he's doing now. Dancing but. at porn clubs still or dancing at strip clubs. It I, That was the other thing about the special. I, there was not a lot of work he was doing at female strip clubs. Like his work, they also made it sound like the victim was this lone predatory gay man hanging out at this Chippendales bar who had hit a... No, he was working at gay clubs. Fort Lauderdale is a gay mecca. I think at one point Fort Lauderdale had a higher per capita gay cap uh, population than any other city in the country. Um, so <gasps> this was I higher know. than West Hollywood. We, mu- we must go there immediately. We um, must get more gay people to move to West Hollywood. We have to win. Yeah, well, we have to. We have to bring because it's rent a competition. Down. Okay, I think I found it. I think I found it. The name of the victim was Sam Del Bracco. Uh, he was an Alexandria marketing executive. He was found fatally stabbed in Florida in 2010. He co-owned well, the I'm prosperous PCI Communications. <laughs> and in 2010, he bought an $850,000 townhouse in Pompano Beach. And that is where he was found slain in September of that <laughs> year, which, according to the Washington Post, pulled back the curtain on a secret life of gay bars and strippers that his friends in the D.C. area said they were fully unaware of. So they talked to some people he worked with whose was not their business that he was going to strip clubs in Florida, and that was how they were able to frame that as some sort of secret life when really it was probably just living as a swing. His own life. He just didn't talk about that at board meetings and with clients. Right. Because and good. That would be completely inappropriate and unbusinesslike. Yeah. So Snavely returned to the world of uh, sex work and performance shortly thereafter and was cleared of all charges. And even imagine- after they said if he ever got off the charges, he would be going back to just being the hangdog reporter from Miami said he would just be going back to just being plain John Snavely. I, it, that was the whole, it's sort of like. I, wa- I thought, what if this was the only 20 minutes you ever consumed about this guy, John Snavely? Think of all of the wild assumptions you would walk away with. It was just, it was such an example of irresponsible journalism in general. And the journalism? Way- <laughs> Let's leave journalists out of this, please. It was just, I couldn't believe it i mean and there was also this sort of like well whatever he did they say at the end of the episode he got in over his head and i was like what does that mean like but he, he charged extra for that right <laughs> like, <laughs> like everybody involved made choices like everybody involved made choices i just it was just it was when people it, it's this combination of sort of subtle homophobia right we're going to erase the victim's name we're going to we're going to 
mess with the timeline so that it looks like the gays came for him later when he was weak and, and running out of money, when really that was how he started, uh, you know, all of it. And then to just sort of leave those holes and to, to imply that, like, well, he made all the wrong choices and the inevitable result of that is that you're going to be accused of a murder you didn't commit. It's just everything about it sent me into yeah, fucking orbit. It was even, he was even shaming about his uh, being a sex worker and whatever. Yeah. Everything about it was written from this sort of... But I guess there's a certain sneering quality to the young hawk and crooked. You know what right. I mean? I, there's a certain sneering quality to the whole notion. I haven't watched any other episodes from this series. One wonders if they are similarly slanted in this sort of ass-aching, moralizing kind of way. I just... I, I found it to be, you know, gossipy and uh, a little... With the promise of salacious, sort of tantalizing, but nothing really there. There was no there there. Yeah, and I, I wonder if it's like me getting called to the carpet on my own motives, because I, I fully admitted we wanted to watch this show so that we could see beautiful people with entitlement issues get punished, but 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 for actually yeah. having done something, not not for being sex workers or for be- well, doing porn, you know. Right, but the, all they talked about was being a sex worker and doing porn. The crime filled the last three minutes of the episode. Like, yeah, there was, it was there was no discussion of an investigation or evidence or the ins and outs or you know if they had started with um, Sam Borelli or whatever his name was. That's not it. That's I think he's the star of of. Uh, Justin <laughs> Bailey, you always like reach into the porn grab bag and pull out a porn star's name. Oh no, that was, he was in Spring Break in 1983. Justin Bailey with two E's in quotes, sort of like you know no. Spike Caro was the recruiter. Is that whose name you're no, looking no. for? No, no, I'm talking about the murder victim, Sam. Oh, Sam Del Bracco. Sam Del Bracco. Sam Borelli starred in um, Hello, Hey Ethan, or What's the Matter with Ethan, or that. That Hulu gay romance show that I love so much that oh, I can okay. never remember the name of. Yeah, um, it, that he was on. He was on some television show. Was he on? Uh, he was on Grey's Jake Borelli. You're talking about Jake, Jake Borelli. Okay. Yeah. I'm, Welcome yeah. to another so episode of Getting Names Wrong with Christopher right, and Eric. Eric okay. Makes up a whole collection of names. Anyway, yeah. so if they had started with Sam's murder. And then fanned out yes. through the investigation to discover you know, this, this, the criminal, and then pursued how they came up with the evidence that they needed to make their arrest, even if they hadn't come to the conclusion, even if they got it wrong, mm-hmm. that would have been an actual investigation. But what most of this show was about was how big his moneymaker was and where he shook it and what he got paid for it and all him drinking that bottomless bottle of champagne 5,000 times at some uh, VIP lounge at some bad uh, Miami uh, DJ club and nothing about the crime at all. I, I think that was the sort of, that was the thing that was the, ultimately the cheat of it was that there was, the crime wasn't the story. The crime, the, the story was gossiping about the salacious details of Mr. Snavely's life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the end result of that, whether it was intentional or not, is that it read like, um, they were so afraid of a lawsuit from Sam Del Bracco's family that they couldn't center him in the story or even name him because it, to do so would be to say he was gay. And it doesn't seem like the man was closeted. I mean, he was in a relationship no, with another man. And I don't understand. Yeah. What, it's not a secret. It's a matter of public record. You were able to find out. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Okay, well, since the only reason we watch this is because of the porn involved, I mean, I, I maybe that's fair, maybe that's not fair, but the reason I picked it, can we talk for a moment about how people talk about porn? Because I feel like there's this divide in our culture, <laughs> and I had this moment with some friends, some good friends of mine whose opinions I really respected and admire, two women, and I said, I was reading a book about the BTK killer, and it was it was relying on what I see as this trope which I find very dated, which was that consumption of pornography was seen as like a, a, a marker for serial killing. Like you see that in the analysis of these early serial killers who were subjected to sort of heavy sort of profiling testing by the FBI in the 60s and 70s and even the 80s. He consumed a lot of pornography. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but if consumption of pornography is, is, a, is a red flag for a serial killer, we have a lot more serial killers in this country than we well, realize. I just think it's it's like saying most people die in bed, so bed is hazardous to your health, which is right. just it, those two things are not connected. Like, I wonder how the consumption of Looney Tunes cartoons <laughs> amongst serial killers is prevalent in their early childhood. Is that what made them serial killer, or the watching of Scooby Doo, or um, how many of them you know liked automobile racing? Mm -hmm. Like those things are not connected to the, the, the being a serial killer. I just no, think that, is, not. that is here, an absurd, uh, that is a non sequitur. But here was the interesting response that I got from my female friends, uh, and they'll remain nameless in this moment because I don't know if they're okay with me discussing this in detail or attributing it directly to them. They said, you know, you, you may be in a bit of a bubble on this because you are a consumer of gay pornography. And what I... I just want to make you aware of is that there is a lot of straight pornography out there that's really legitimately disturbing that really depicts some intensely violent things. And um, maybe, you know, it's made legally, it's made with consenting adults, but there is a sense on a large part of women that while they are often the implements of these productions, it doesn't really include anything that connects with their actual sexual fantasies or their life. So they feel like they're, they're sort of used as objects, right? And that these same women who take exception to that form of pornography love gay pornography because it seems and looks more pure and more consensual and all the part, even if it's an illusion, it seems like the participants are all sort of fully engaged and it doesn't look like anybody's being strangled or victimized. I mean, well, that's, you know, it was that so they were they opened my eyes a little bit to like how they feel about some of this stuff. And, well, and whether I, and still I think, think the point is the same. I think, yeah, if you've been found to be an early consumer of snuff films, real or staged, that's a different thing mm -hmm. than if you were a big consumer of pornography. Pornography is not the same thing as snuff. Right. You know what I mean? Like that isn't that 
or like child pornography, if you were a big consumer of that, I could see that that would be a real sort of like well, red that's flag. All. Right, those are crimes. I mean, those are terrible but the, crimes, yeah. But those are actual behaviors that are adjacent to, you know, like that is leading somebody into like, okay, this might be indicative of behavioral choices and issues that might come along. But just blanket pornography, I mean, the difference between a, a simulated snuff film and a Playboy magazine is the difference between um, the, the you know, the, the revolutionary war and an argument over coffee. You know right, what I mean? right. Like, but let's snuff film is probably extreme, even if it's simulated. Let's go with the example that I heard about recently, and this is me devil's advocating this. I don't. I, I I'm very sort of pro porn, pro free speech. I've written erotic content that's. I would I would not be uncomfortable if somebody called it porn. I don't think it's an insult. I think porn is fantasy, and I think we need fantasy, and we need ways to express healthily and safely our fantasies. That said. The example that you hear is young man, teenager, watches a straight porn film that depicts the man choking the girl during sex. Not to death, but his hands wrapped around her throat. And he goes and tries that with his 15-year-old girlfriend, and she completely flies apart and gets upset and sobs. And he says, I thought this was what women wanted because I saw it in this porn film. He says at 15, I did not see this film as being a product purely of a male fantasy I thought it was a representation of a consensual communal fantasy. I mean, ultimately, I think the story is that you don't try anything that aggressive in bed with a partner unless you have talked it through with them first. You know, it's like BDSM requires extensive conversation and communication as part of why it's so, I think, titillating to people because it's or actually intimate for any, that reason. Any sort of sexual interaction with somebody else. I mean, what if you decided to try butt sex because... You saw it in a film, you know, without right. we're already having sex. So I just thought I would, you know, use a different hole. I, I, I would think that, you know, the amount of discussion it would cause would occasion to cause somebody to blow you. Mm -hmm. Like that, that wouldn't already lead you to question whether or not Welch is choking or a good idea. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like I just. Mm -hmm. I, I just I find that to be a bit spurious. I, right. I just think that there's already for any sort of sexual interaction some degree of discussion and consent, unless it's you know non-consensual, in which case we've moved back into the crime realm on its own. But yeah. I, I just I, I I can't find that to be a particularly compelling case for how pornography would be the cause of it. Right. I, I agree with you. And I think if anything, it indicates, well, um, nobody was talking to these kids about sex in a frank and realistic way and the communication required. So they went and they got their instructions from something that was easily available on the Internet. And I think you need to look at the local abstinence only programs that may be influencing sex education in your area and see if that's part of the problem. But I think the larger question I'm asking here is, I'm always taken aback by the sermonizing and moralizing around the subject of porn, particularly in anything, and sex work, particularly in anything true crime related. And I think it's originating from this segment of the porn industry that I'm not in a lot of contact with, which is the straight porn world, where all these complicated, conflicted feelings are happening for people. Whereas gay porn to me just seems fine. Like everybody looks like they're having a great time. I know people who run these companies. Nobody's being human trafficked. It's not connected to this criminal underworld that porn is already always associated with. It just always sets me back a little bit to see what 
to see how much more copacetic we as gay people seem to be with our porn and our porn performers and our porn companies than straight people are. I think for them, it's it's still like this fringe thing around around which they seem to have so much shame. And I felt it in this documentary, is what I'm saying. I think that I think that that's maybe not a very full address of gay pornography, mm-hmm. you know, or pornography in general. I think that my thought is, is that because of the sort of moralizing around the issue of sex work, like sex work is one of those things that I've always felt like it's illegal. It's only illegal because it's against the law. Mm-hmm. We've, and once you make something illegal, then you involve a criminal element in it. Mm-hmm. Like, the making it, it's that that introduces human trafficking and uh, mob, the, you know, mob finance. You, you turn something into a things. black market, right. Right. Yeah. I, and I think that is true in both gay and straight porn. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it is entirely true, but I think it has become a component because, not because it's intrinsically a part of pornography or sex work, but because it's intrinsically a part of making something illegal Mm-hmm. because of some sort of ass-aching moralizing about it rather than some, you know, any sort of real actual harm that it's doing. And so the laws actually introduce the harm. I think probably mm-hmm. both are very equivalent. Mm-hmm. And I think that your reaction to gay porn is probably not unlike most straight men reacting to straight porn. Most of what they see is, you know... Playboy magazine or, you know, that kind of a much more innocent, everybody's consenting and having a good time kind of porn, the sort of boogie nights, early form of porn, rather than a darker, there are darker casts to it, but that's because it is introduced to criminal element Mm -hmm. um, in the ongoing process of developing it. Uh, Times Square was, I'm sorry they had to, you know, completely eliminate Times Square, but it wasn't possible to have the sort of sex industry that was there without Mm -hmm. having the crime that came with it. Mm -hmm. And so in order to clean it up, they had to get rid of both. And that's unfortunate, but I think it continues to hark back more to our sort of moralizing about other people's sexuality than it does with anything intrinsic in the, the, it's, it's the reason that it, it's it's such a non sequitur in seeing it as a risk factor for serial killers. It's because that's that's judging it from a perspective and not from an actual consumer consumer point of view. Right. Do you know I what get. I, mean? I, I agree. I get, and I think I probably did gloss over. I think what you're what you're pointing out is that it, it, as long so long as prostitution is made illegal, it will forever tether the porn industry to a criminal underworld of some sort, of some degree. And I think it, it points out, but it is a circular thing, as you said. I'm reminded of the story I know I've told before on the podcast of my mother working in insurance early in the 60s and being told we can't sell policies to gay people because they can be so easily blackmailed and sitting there realizing part of the reason they can be easily blackmailed is because nobody will sell them insurance if they know they're gay. We are creating and perpetuating the system, and I think a similar thing exists with sex workers. They are vulnerable because they cannot go to the police if a client turns on them because they would have to admit they were in the middle of an illegal act. All of that, and I think that's a that's a very good point. I think I get head up when anybody says fantasy is a problem. 
That is when your fantasies are a problem. Illegal acts, a problem. I believe the law exists, and I believe if we don't like the law, we should work to change the law. But when someone says something in your head is a crime, I get really bothered. And I think that's because of the profession that I work in, and I think that's because people try to tell you, at one point they said you shouldn't write about gay people, which was really all I wanted to write about in the beginning. Or you should write about a certain type of gay people. And I'm like, I write fiction, you know, and there is nothing. Fiction is never a crime, in my opinion. It can never be a crime. What people do in response to fiction is the result of a far more complicated set of, of things related to them. And I think it gets back to that idea of consumption of pornography can't produce a serial killer. You have to have the other tendencies of a serial killer before you arrive at the material. for that. And, if, and you always have to answer that question. We saw it around mass shootings, right? This conversation of were video games to blame for mass shootings? And you have to say, or violent movies, it's like, okay, conduct a study and interview every other human being who watched that violent movie and did not go out and commit a mass shooting. And then come up with an explanation for why that is if you still want to further the theory that that movie caused that mass shooting. And I also want to say this, this has been brought to you by um, Godiva Truffles. <laughs> and an episode that gave us almost nothing of interest to talk about. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I would like to talk about. Yes, you go right ahead. I would like to talk about how wonderful it was. I would like to talk about Blood Victory and oh. how wonderful it was that people turned out for our virtual book signing yes, that we absolutely. did last month. I, I, I hope the book is doing well. Certainly the virtual book signing went terrifically well. I it think did. for everybody concerned, the Rip Bodice was wonderful. And our books, our signed books, are still available to order from the Rip Bodice at any time. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the personalized ones, that is really, that requires actually, more of an effort. Yeah, but. we're going to, they're working on new schedules at the Rip Bodice. I don't think signed books are available all year round, but we're, we can set up another one. As long as the pandemic is ongoing, we have to be a little well, uh, strict. But I've but pre-signed stock. Ah, right. Yes, absolutely. Is always available to order from them at any time. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I know I have signed books there that are just signed. They're not Great. personalized, but yeah. they're just signed stock is sitting there ready to go. Um, and it was, I, I thought that the, the signing went really well. And it was mm -hmm. great to hear from, if, 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 I don't know if it was just people from the podcast, but it was great to hear from everybody and uh, hope that, that, that Blood Victory is doing well. Also available, you know, just for a fun read from Amazon. You don't Absolutely. Download it instantly, have it on your Kindle signed or unsigned, and still read it. You know what we've done as a result of this episode? We have made me confident to open pages on my computer without shutting down our recording system. So I'm, I'm, I literally, as an Amazon author, I have access to a sales portal that I can open at any time and see how my book yes. is. Yeah, it's doing fine. <laughs> it's doing great. Doing great. Looking good. I don't want to quote the numbers live, but, you know. Excellent. No, no that would be, no, that isn't, they don't do that on the New York Times bestseller list. I, no. I just, yeah. It's doing well and it's selling and people are, so that's terrific. And I think that's well worth talking about and doesn't have anything to do with all the rest of this. <laughs> I don't want to talk great... about porn anymore by Eric Shawquin. <laughs> well, I think we covered it. Yeah, I think we did. I think we did. I think we covered it. So, um, so um, yeah. And uh, I think that this has been a wonderful opportunity as a writer to get back to the roots of uh, what we do for a living because mm -hmm. God knows there's no 
going anywhere else except to the office, which just happens to be right down the hall. Absolutely. So we're coming back next week with the return of a segment that's still fairly new here at TDBS Presents Christopher and Eric. It's called What's Science? And it's... Well, and it was actually originally introduced on the Dinner Party Show by um, our special correspondent, uh, very special correspondent, Jordan Ampersand. Jordan Ampersand, yes. And it was in a somewhat different format when Jordan Ampersand used to do What's Science. Now it consists of your hosts here at TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric taking a deep dive into the paranormal or I think the better described unexplained or inexplicable if you will. Yes, or uh, what or just dreadful. Like one of the things that I enjoyed about this week's episode and that I enjoyed about Red Rum and that I enjoy about the what science is sometimes my enjoyment from this comes from the fact that what we're seeing is so terrible. Like mm-hmm. there is bad reviews are often better than good ones you know Mm -hmm. like sometimes doing just a terrible job this one was bordering on homophobia and straight washing so it kind of moved beyond what um i would just consider you know bad wigs and what re re Uh, recrapulations reencraptacular is the term that i use yes reencraptaculations um Whatever it is, but yeah, the, the, the reenactments that are done by terrible actors and like a lot of those things can have their own sort of joy in them. It's like camp movies, like John Waters movies, you know, part of the right. camp is that the camera work and the acting is so terrible. In the old ones, he eventually became, I think, a very popular mainstream film director, but the old John Waters movies were a hit because they were so bad. Right. Absolutely. So let me tell our party people, what we will be talking about for What Science Volume 3 on our next episode. Oh, yeah. We will be facing off as we do in this format. Eric will watch one episode. I will watch another. Eric will be watching Forbidden Mysteries, Ancient, Ancient Knowledge and Lost Worlds, and the episode will be entitled Anomalies on the Moon, which is Season 1, Episode 2. I will be covering... The same show, Forbidden Mysteries, Ancient Knowledge, and Lost Worlds. But my episode will be called The Nephilim Watchers, Will They Return to Earth? And that is Season 4, Episode 3. Until then, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.